afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and free shipping on orders over $25. My guest today is best-selling author Sue Monk Kidd, whose new novel, The Book of Longings, has as its main character a woman named Anna, the fictional wife of a first-century teacher and prophet named Jesus. Sue, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I have to tell you, this is the first time I've interviewed an author whose book I have taught. Because years and years ago, I was doing a long-term sub for ninth grade English, and we read um, The Secret Life of Bees. So I, I wish I oh, remember. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's, and thank you. Thank you for that. That's great. I, the, you know, the thing I remember most with, with ninth graders is they all wanted to go put peanuts in a bottle of Coca-Cola. You know, that was that, that made a big impression. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a great takeaway yeah. from the novel. Well, this new novel is a bold and significant undertaking. And to begin with, almost nothing in the world that we live in today prepares you to write about the first century AD in the Middle East. How did you learn about the world of the novel? What was the background research like? Well, it was a lot. I mean, it was very... Um, daunting in a way, but also kind of enjoyable and wonderful. Um, I just dived in the best I could. I mean, I wish I could have transplanted myself back there, but yeah. I did the next best thing, I guess. I just collected what I call my tiny library of everything from, you know, the historical Jesus to Palestine and, um, well, I should not say Palestine, I should say Galilee and Judea in the first century, and um, just a a myriad of topics that I had to learn and discover. So there was that, there were documentaries, there was a trip I made to the Holy Land, are you ready, 40 years ago, but I still had my journals, and some of those descriptions worked for me. So it was was just a a kind of multiple multi-approach for me, but it took 14 months of that before I could write. Yeah. I think there's something wonderful about um, an experience 40 years in your past that, that comes back up with a novel that you're working on today. I think that's, I think that's fantastic. Um, a, a lot of us have a tendency, I know I do, to think of the world of Jesus as this sort of spare rural place. I mean, yes, he ends up in Jerusalem, but a lot of the ministry is in smaller towns. It's in the countryside. But you paint these amazing pictures of cities, both Roman and Egyptian, that that flourished at that same time. And cities the likes of which, after the fall of Rome, we wouldn't see again probably for a thousand years. Tell us a little bit about those metropolises and, and the process of recreating them for your readers. Well, I was um, surprised to discover this city called Sepphoris which was the capital of Galilee at the time that Jesus lived. And it, of course, we don't, I think it it might be mentioned once in the New Testament. I'm not sure about that, but it's basically missing. And they uncovered this archaeological, um, really, treasure 
And it was amazing how much of it was still there. And they could extrapolate, of course, all kinds of things about the city from that. And there are writings about it. Um, Historians have written about it. So I tried to create that world, which was a mere four miles from Nazareth. And many of the people in Nazareth might have sought work there. There's a lot of really fascinating speculation by scholars about how this close proximity of Sepphoris affected or impacted Jesus, um, that he was much more aligned with a sophisticated world than we perhaps realized. And I love the scene where Anna sails into the harbor at Alexandria and she sees the lighthouse and then, uh, you know, these, these things that we think of almost as fictional because they've been gone for so long. Um, but the, but they're really brought to life. Talk a little bit about Alexandria. Well, that was really fun to write. Um, I I did a lot of research on Egypt and Alexandria. Of course, it doesn't exist either. Yeah. So we have to rely on a lot of um, extant records about that. Um, but there are drawings of various drawings of the um, great library in Alexandria, and there's quite a bit written about that. And there's, of course, the lighthouse, which was one of the seven wonders of the world that was just an amazing contraption um, that I was able to find material on. I mean, there were amazing um, temples and um, structures that lined the great harbor coming into Alexandria. It must have been quite a spectacle. So I tried very hard to give the reader a sense of just how awe-inspiring that was for my character. Yeah. This novel has what I would consider to be one of the world's great elevator pitches. It's the story of Jesus' wife. That's kind of all you need to to pull people in. But the Book of Longings is a lot more than that. Um, Where did the novel begin with you? Did it begin with that idea or with the setting or with the character of Anna? It didn't really begin with the character or the person of Jesus so much as my character, Anna. I like to say she was the inspiration for it. Um, But it actually began when I was reading a National Geographic article about a fragment of a papyrus referred to or or named by a Harvard professor as the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. Mm -hmm. Of course, it it turned out to be probably a fraud, fraudulent um, uh, papyrus, and yet... I was already just on fire just from reading this. It was kind of irrelevant to me whether it was authentic or not um, because my imagination just got ignited when I read that. And I suddenly pictured in my mind this young woman. Um, I could see her, and a name came to me, Anna. And before I knew it, you know, I was off on this story of her being um, becoming the wife of Jesus before his public ministry when he was just 20 years old. Yeah, yeah. Because he had a life before <laughs> that very public um, ministry he had that we all probably know something about, but we don't know anything about the years before that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, one of the things I found interesting about the way you create this character is, you know, we know very little about what it felt like to live in that time period, even if we can uncover what buildings looked like or what people ate, we don't, we don't really know how it feels. And it gives you as a novelist this great leeway when it comes to the internal lives of your characters. So 
in Anna, were you were you more interested in trying to get inside the head of a real first century woman or in creating a character that a 21st century reader would would be able to relate to? Absolutely both, uh-huh. <laughs> which which was um, maybe a big challenge. But I really feel like writing historical fiction, uh, the point is to be relevant today in yeah. some way. I mean, it has to affect how we live our lives today or inform it or something. And But at the same time, um, you want this character to belong to their world as much as possible. So it's a, I think it's a kind of balancing act for me, really. Um, but Anna had many, I mean, Anna was definitely ahead of her time. Yeah. <laughs> she, she's been called um, the first feminist or something, or a proto-feminist or all kinds of things like that. And of course, feminism did not exist back then. But I really think that knowing women, knowing myself, they there is a hunger, a longing, a, a desire to have the same opportunities that your brother has. Yeah. You want, you want, you see it, you feel it, and I don't care what era you lived in. You probably felt some of the limitations of that, and Anna felt them, and then some. She was unique in that way, and I needed to make her unique because she's going to become the wife of Jesus. So she had to have a a magnitude all her own. I mean, she had, I wanted her to meet him fully and be a partner. So, it, you know, I had to endow her with all kinds of um, brilliance and ambition and uniqueness. Uh, but mainly, she just longed to have a voice in the world. That was her thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a line that struck me with a particular power. I think this is fairly early in the book where Anna says or thinks the entire world was a cage. And this is kind of talking about what what you were just getting at. But she grows up as a wealthy first century Hebrew woman. Tell us about in what sense was that life a cage? And then how did the life after she marries Jesus and is really living more of a peasant life, how, how do those two lives differ in their, you know, keeping her encaged? Yes, um... I purposely wanted her to be of a family that had some eliteness, some wealth, because it was such a contrast to the life she would then fall into with Jesus. And I love a good fish out of water story, you know. So I wanted to be able to have that. And also, um, it, it shows a kind of difference between Anna and Jesus, that they had to reconcile somehow. Um, And I also needed to have ties with her family to the um, Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee, the the ruler. So there were reasons that I made her elite. And in Sepphoris, they're uncovered just these palatial mansions with mosaic floors and frescoes on the walls and um, all kinds of large inner courtyards. And so these things existed there. And so I just might as well put Anna and her family in one of them. And her father was a scribe who worked for Herod Antipas. So that's that story. But Nazareth was a whole other world. And it was mostly um, a peasant village. 
and Anna had to adapt. I mean, she didn't know anything about domestic work. She had to learn the hard way how to milk a goat and things like that. Um, so these two worlds were in contrast to one another. And, um, you know, Anna had to navigate both of them, but they both in some way became a cage for her because she was prevented from doing the thing she most wanted, which was to be a scribe herself, you know, to write the stories of women, particularly the lost stories, um, to voice and express herself and to be, I just, I guess, to find her fullness of, of her potential like Jesus would do. So um, that was her, these, the domestic life, the, the social and cultural norms of both worlds prevented her. I love the way you're able to um, sort of turn our expectations on end a little bit with with some of the social norms that are different from the way they are now. One of the ones that really struck me was there's a moment where Anna is posing for a mosaic uh, in the floor of of this um, Roman building. And partly it's because I'm just so in awe of the artwork of these 2,000-year-old mosaics when I see them in situ or in museums. Um, but but tell us a little bit about that, about how what we might expect as a modern reader to go, oh, wow, what an honor, how lucky. She, she must be so happy that she's posing for this. And yet her <laughs> attitude is very, very different from that. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I'll start by saying that this mosaic that um, is in the novel was inspired by an actual mosaic yes. that is on the floor of a Galilean um, mansion really in Sepphoris wow. that they discovered. It's called the Mona Lisa of Galilee, mm. and it is exquisite. And you can, if you want to go over there, you can see it today. So I saw these beautiful pictures of it, and um, I thought, oh, Anna has to pose for that. And I actually thought it would go in a different direction, sort of similar to what you said. And yet, when it came time to write this part of it, I realized that I needed to utilize this as a kind of plot twist, if you will, to further my story. So Anna's very sly. She's pretty, she's pretty sharp about things, and she, t- she was forced to sit for this um, against her will. You know, there was a, um, a mandate that you should not have... Um, images of people you shouldn't you not not to mention pose for them but you shouldn't create them that was against judaic law and so she worried about that a little bit which was unusual because she usually didn't worry about breaking rules (laughs) um but you know it became a a way for her to save her brother and her brother is no less than judas um, and we're going to get to Judas a little bit later because I love that you have her her brother being Judas. But but I want to talk about another family member first, and that's her aunt, who she has probably about the closest relationship with, is certainly with anybody in her family. Um, and her aunt says something near the beginning of the book that echoes the title, and it seems to me to sort of set the tone for the whole novel. She says, "A man's holy of holies contains God's laws, but inside a woman's there are only longings." Can you sort of just sort of unpack that for us a little bit? Well, Yalta is the lifeline for Anna. She's this, um, I would say, fierce woman 
who's highly educated, and one of the ways Anna describes her is to say she trespasses everywhere um, with her mind, really. And so she's a constant companion to Anna, and she tells her this uh, early on. And in a way, I think you're right. I think it does set a kind of trajectory for the novel. Uh, um, Anna starts this story by saying, my life was begging to be born. <laughs> I think back in that time, no doubt, when women were so caged and so limited, um, they probably had more longings in, inside than anything else. And so this was um, the, the observation that Yalta made of Anna, that she was so filled with young longings and men... Men have probably more ability and freedom to satisfy their own longings, and so they don't carry that. They carry God's laws. That was how Yalta saw it. And the whole book does kind of move along the lines of, of Anna and, all, and a lot of other women seeking to um, find a way to fulfill some of these longings in themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, your readers will have a lot of preconceived notions about the character of Jesus, um, but most of those notions, as you said, are formed about Jesus when he's um, in his early 30s, and we first meet him in your novel when he's about 20. Um, how, how did you either leverage or subvert our expectations about Jesus? How did you take what we expect and, and build on that or, or find ways to surprise us by presenting him in a contradictory way? Um, I'm not sure I consciously knew that I was trying to do that but um, at the time. But I look back and I realized probably what I was doing was just putting forth the best, um, the best portrait of him that I could as a young man. We actually meet him at 18. And so what was he like at 18 and 20 and 24? And, what, and so I portrayed him as having, as fully human, I mean, that was what my novelist self wanted to do, was to show this great humanity and how his life was being fully human, because that has been eclipsed largely by his divinity. And it seems like we relate to him primarily um, in church through his divine self. But do how do we relate to him as a human being and identify with him and see that part of his life? So that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, I just tried to imagine him as a as a fully Jewish man doing trying to do what Jewish men did at the age of twenty, which was to marry. And so I tried to uh, show an evolving sense of his destiny that was inside of him. He was, he was pulled towards something larger than himself, and he was trying in his way to define that and understand it as he gets throughout the story. Um, so, And Anna is trying to do that, too. And Anna calls this her largeness. And she says they are both, you know, trying to find that. But, of course, Anna understands that she might lose him when this happens. Mm-hmm. 
I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the issue of portraying him as fully human because that's one of the things I really liked about his character. Because to me, it always seemed that the whole point of the incarnation was was God made fully human. You know, that if he's not fully human, you sort of like go off the rails with 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 the whole reason. Um, but to what extent did did theology pay, play a role in in your creating either his character or the novel? Is that is that an area of research you went down, or did you just sort of set that aside and focus more on character? I, what I studied really extensively was the scholars who were writing about the historical Jesus, the historians. Mm-hmm. And there's an enormous amount they really uh, know about that. And so that was where I went with it. I mean, I did feminist theology figures very strongly in the book. Um, but that was probably the extent of it. The, the humanness of Jesus, um, I think if we could rediscover that, it would be a really great thing for us because we can, you know, right now, he's, if he's fully divine and we can't relate to his humanity, we can't see ourselves doing anything remotely like he did. But if we can identify with him and understand his humanness, maybe we can think, hmm, maybe I could do that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's a kind of theological reason, I guess. I mean, it, it puts me in mind a little bit of the reaction um, and sort of an assumption that's built into the text of, uh, of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. There's this, there's this assumption in that text that if there was uh, physical proof that, that Jesus had a wife, or that Jesus had offspring, that that would shatter everybody's faith. And I thought, well, that wouldn't shatter my faith in the slightest, because again, to me, the whole point is that, that Christ was human. So, you know, do do you have you felt any of that sort of reaction to your to your text? People who resent the humanity, and to me, it, it it's a very positive thing for my faith. But I wonder if if other people react in different ways. You know, the vast majority of comments I have read or heard are very much like what you just said. Um, they they seem to be um, very positive about rediscovering this figure that they may have lost touch with along the way. Um, You know, I wanted to portray him as close to the the New Testament Jesus as I could, but in my, through my lens, which was a a man who valued compassion and empathy and inclusion, Mm -hmm. who cared about the poor and the the invisible and so forth. And um, I mean, he had a vision and I tried to portray that, to portray his kindness and his humor. Um, I wanted to do this in a very reverent way, but to say, look at this extraordinary human being. And a lot of readers I have seen are nervous about that, uh, reading about Jesus having a wife. And they, but it's been interesting how they have said, so I took a chance, I read it anyway, and I'm so glad I did because I have met him again. And I know him in a new way. So those were very gratifying things to hear from me. Um, But I think those who have been um, really critical of my approach here, and I'm sure there have been far more than I'm aware of, have not really read it yet. Yeah. So that, you know. Um, So we've been talking about the character of Jesus to a great extent. But as you said, Anna's brother is a man named Judas, and he has 
an agenda which is sometimes aligned with that of Jesus and sometimes not. But um, talk to us about how you imagined his character um, and and created his particular uh, story. Well, I wanted to bring Judas into this story um, to humanize him as well and help us to maybe re-envision him as someone who had motives for what he did, though they were very twisted motives and really kind of out of bounds. But but there were reasons and there were motivations, and it was all very complex that were tied up with his childhood and his own wounds and loss in his life. So it became a very political thing for Judas, and I wanted to kind of portray that in the story, but I didn't know how to bring him into it all. I just, you know, thought it would be a very sort of conventional way. And then um, it occurred to me one day, well, maybe Anna needs some, a sibling. She needs, you know, someone in the house. And, it, and I thought, well, why not Judas? <laughs> why not? So he becomes her adopted brother, and it made for a much more interesting story for me to write. Yeah. Um, I, I, I sort of see that in, in my mind as I was, as you're talking about Judas, he's, he's part of this band of, um, I don't know if rebels is exactly the right word, but you know, if you're a Star Wars yeah, fan, right. he leads yeah. the rebel alliance. Yeah. He, he's trying, he, his, his goal is the <laughs> overthrow of, of Roman imperial rule. That's, and it seems to me that um, I always wondered, you know, okay, well, how is that going to align with, with Jesus's um, goals and mission? And it, it seems like where it aligns is on the issue of justice. But the difference is that Judas is seeking political justice, whereas Jesus is seeking social justice. Is that is that kind of the direction we are going? Yeah, I, you know that's I think a really good insight, Charlie. Yeah, um, G, they did have similar views in some ways and different views in others, yeah. and it was another difference would be how they would go about achieving this justice, right? right. And and what motivates them? Um, you know, Judas was of this party of zealots, these brigands, I guess they were, who would go to almost any length to achieve their, I like the rebel alliance. That's great (laughs) stuff there. (laughs) I like that. Um, But Jesus was nonviolent in his approach. I think at first he, he wanted to, I think, overthrow the Roman rule, but not in a physical, violent way with swords. He wanted to do it some other way. And it became a a matter of transformation of the heart. So they approached it very differently. Let's let's talk about your process for just a minute. Anna says this wonderful thing about her own writing process. And and as a writer, this sentence really grabbed me. She said, there are times when words are so glad to be set free, they laugh out loud and prance across their tablets. Do you ever feel that way about your, your own writing? And, and what's it like to get to that moment? Occasionally I do. I think yeah. maybe every writer has a moment or so like that where you just unleash words that feel true and honest and and they dance on the on the computer screen, I guess, yeah. not the papyrus anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I um, I'm a very plotting kind of writer. I love to imagine fiercely <laughs> and fearlessly, mm-hmm. but 
then I like to be like a banker going to work, you know, keep these banker's hours and just plod through. And I create a, um, a, a plot, an outline that I sometimes deviate from and sometimes adhere to, but it's there to sort of be a little guide for me. But in the end, it's always this confluence of um, of letting the the words just float out and dance, and sometimes just meticulously struggling to get them right. Um, it's a balance act all the time for me. One of the one of the challenges that that you and I don't have uh, as writers that Anna did have as a writer is simply the technology of first century writing. And I, I just love these descriptions you have of, of the different surfaces that she's able to write on, um, the inks that she used. Talk, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what, what that technology was and how it would differ at, at different socioeconomic levels. Right. I had so much fun oh, yeah. trying to find these ways that people wrote and what they wrote on and <laughs> I could not believe all the different things they used from palm leaves to sheets of ivory to um, just shards of pottery and I used every one I could find yeah, yeah. and I was in a um, museum in Dublin, Ireland during the writing of this book and sadly I am blanking out on the name of this museum but it I, I, it was largely about um, the ex- creative expressions of ancient people and what they used. And I could see, I saw these ivory sheets, very thinly beaten, milky, mm. I mean, glowing. And I got very excited. Of course, that makes an appearance in my book. But I'm with you. And the inks, oh my goodness, how they were able to dye them and create them. And Anna makes her own inks. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. And Aren't we glad we don't have to do that, though? Well, I love this idea, too, that, you know, the, the very, very wealthy are writing, as you say, on these beautiful ivory sheets. But then when she's in Nazareth, she's writing on shards of broken pottery, you know, that even in the, even in the trash heap, she can find something to, to, to write on. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Um she really, for a long time, couldn't even find that to write on. Yeah. And because of her duties and her, um, the way life is structured for women, she really wasn't allowed to write. She was always milking the goat again. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think um, she had this opportunity finally to do that um, through a set of circumstances. And... Um, she, she would stack them up like little towers, these broken pieces of pottery that contained her deepest thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, she found a way, always. So you mentioned her, her sense of duty, which she certainly has. And I think she's, she sees that there are almost two paths in life which she finds incompatible, and that is duty and longing. To what extent do you mm-hmm. think that is still true today, and, and especially for women living in 21st century America? I mean, is that still a pull in two directions for them? Yes, it is. Very much so. I hear from these women all the time. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, one of them wrote to me this week saying, 
she has she's a writer. She has two toddlers, um, and a husband who you know works outside the home and comes home and he's worked hard. He's tired. He sits down. That's it. And she said she has no time to write. Yeah. She is taking care of everyone else. Yeah. And this sounds like an ancient story, and it is today's story. I mean, there are there are just so many women like this who are pulled between the needs of their children and their family and their need to fulfill their own largeness like Anna longed to do. So, yeah, I think we're women still have longings. I mean, full, I think it, full of them. it seems to me that the, the present situation we're we're talking in mid-May 2020 um, is sort of magnified that. I mean, I know I know so many writers, editors, publicists, people in I mean, mostly I deal with people in the publishing business. But so many of them are mothers with young children who were suddenly now not at school for six or seven hours a day. Mm. They're at home, and and mm-hmm. and they it it makes a real impact on their, um, you know, they're expected to do two full time jobs, three full time jobs, childcare, teacher, and then whatever their job was, you know, and uh, it, it, that's a lot to have on one plate, obviously. Um, yes, it is. These domestic requirements and maternal requirements and wifely requirements. Yeah, yeah. Um, usually, the one that um, is about themselves is at the bottom of the pile. Yeah, yeah. There are in this novel some moments which, if they were in a novel set in the current area era, we would call "me too" moments. Um, moments of men exerting power over women in ways that we would find uh, unpleasant, I guess I would say. I don't want to give, give too much away. To, but, say, to uh, say the least. To yes. say the least, <laughs> yes. Uh, but my question is, how do you think those moments feel for today's reader in 2020 as opposed to the way they might have felt for a reader in 1950 or 1960? Oh, yeah. I think that would have been... Um very controversial to even read about in 1950. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet the same dynamics would be going on, which have to, and these were explored in the book in a kind of peripheral, not central plot thing, but more of a subplot, I guess you would say. Um, They would be things like um, if you experience a sexual assault, do you do you speak of it? Yeah. Are you silenced and are you believed? Those those perennial questions about it. Yeah. And yes, there are a couple of Me Too moments. One, um, they happen. One, which is not too graphic at all, happens in a scene. But the other one happens off stage. Yeah. It's yeah. more uh, more intense. But it's something that happens to Anna's friend, and Anna, of course, responds to it yeah. with her own um, <laughs> ferocity. It, it amazes me how everything I seem to read lately has this prescience about our current situation during the, the COVID pandemic. And there, here it is in your book. There's this moment where this, what you call a fever sickness, descends on the area where Anna lives. And you write, it's almost, I read this sentence and I just almost fell out of my chair. You said, the entire city was closed up tight as a fist. Um, obviously, 
the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, but what is the what has the spring of 2020 been like for you as this book has been published? How has it has it been different from from other times that you've launched a book into the world? Well, dramatically different. Yes. Um, I mean, I wish I had known that I was being prescient here. I just didn't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. um, but it has been uh, at first kind of confusing and disappointing because you, I mean, I worked on this book for four and a half years. Yeah. And yeah. one of the joys of it, as you know, is taking it out into the world and saying, here's my baby. Yeah. Uh, you know, here it is. What do you think? Let me talk to you about it and to hear what readers are saying. And I dreamed of that, and then it didn't happen. And, of course, we all became virtual then. Yeah. And so I've learned how to – I know more crazy technologies now than I ever wanted to. <laughs> yes. um, but I've done, you know, a lot of live virtual events, and I've done a lot of these wonderful podcasts. And I've talked to radio, st- you know, NPRs. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it has been a different approach. But what I found, which surprised the heck out of me, was that I could still engage these readers. Yeah. And and they were very responsive. And the most uh, biggest example of that is we started a virtual book club for the Book of Longings mm-hmm. and just thousands of women, mainly women, I have yet to find a man in it, but I wish they would join us, um, would, were involved and engaged in talking about the book, and we have a discussion each week um, that we tape and post. So it, it's been, a, I guess, a creative experience, too, figuring out how to talk to your audience, your readers, about yeah. your work. Yeah, I have a book coming out in September, and I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around, you know, what what that's going to look like. Um, but let me say to men who are listening, just because a novel is written by a woman and has a woman protagonist doesn't mean you're not going to enjoy it. You are going to enjoy this novel. I don't. I didn't ever feel like this was a women's novel that I was sort of trespassing on on space that, that wasn't meant for me. It, it it didn't feel that way at all. Um, Anna says of the story of Osiris, I mean, her aunt says of the story of Osiris, they're talking about storytelling, and she says this wonderful thing. She says, it's not meant to be a factual story, but it is still true. How do you think that line might apply to your novel? Um, I hope it applies completely. (laughs) I mean, it is obviously a fictional tale. Um, But... There are always universals in a no, in most novels, and I like to think that there are in this novel. The Book of Longings essentially tells the story of a, of a woman's journey to the fullness of herself and to embrace the largeness in herself and to be courageous and to kind of fulfill her longings. So that is something that is true in women, I think, and in men as well. So I, I feel like it's a, there is truth inside and fiction on the outside. Yeah, yeah. We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. 
You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners some insight into writing and into you as well. What word do you love to work into your writing? Well, I'm going to say longing, because I have loved this word for so long, and I finally got to use it in a title. Yeah. But yes, and I also love the word belonging. Mm -hmm. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Just harsh words like harsh. <laughs> you know, those, those uh, words that don't have any dance in them, that don't have that fluidity, and that, that are, have a hard time dancing across the page. You know, words <laughs> like flat yeah. and harsh. Where is your favorite place to write? Oh, in my writing study. Where could I you... have a room of my own. Just like Virginia Woolf. Where could you never write? Yes. Well, I wish I could write like a lot of people in cafes, you know, sit in Starbucks with my cappuccino and my laptop and write and watch the world come and go. But I need solitude. Yeah, yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention it used to be the Oxford comma, but I have become a convert, <laughs> so I can't claim that. I, I now I'm just crazy about using the Oxford comma. <laughs> um, let's see, which is the least? It's probably every other comma. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I'm, I'm really bad about commas, except for the Oxford comma. I've learned that one. What was the first book you remember reading? I have a very vivid memory of reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Oh. I think I was around oh. eight. Well, you need when this is all over, you got to come and visit me. I have a whole house full of Alice's Adventures. I'm a I, I'm a Lewis Carroll collector, so I can I can show you everything oh, from the first edition. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I loved it. Was a very important book for me. I I can remember exactly where I was when I read it. Yeah. I was under a tree oh. in my yard. Perfect. Yeah. What are you reading now? I am reading um, a thriller, actually, called The Silent Patient, which is a little bit out of my reading, typical reading, but it's really quite good. Um, and I just finished um, Before We Were Yours by Lisa Wingate. What book would you like to have written? The Poisonwood Bible. <laughs> What sort of book? I would love to have written that. Yeah, what sort I love of, that book. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Well, I can't say historical fiction because I probably will do that again in some way. I, I'm going to say um, a comedy, a comic mm -hmm. kind of. What's the right word? Let's <laughs> say a. a um, a kind of humorous comic novel yeah. like Emma Strahd would write, you know, <laughs> just so great, but I don't think I could do it. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That the experience of reading my book um, gave them empathy for other lives, you know. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, 
visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Sue Monk Kidd, whose novel, The Book of Longings, is available wherever books are sold. Sue, I hope we'll see you in Winston-Salem sometime. And in the meantime, thanks for joining us. Well, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking to Benjamin Taylor about his new book, Here We Are, My Friendship with Philip Roth. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.